Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord and joining us online. If you are, good morning to you also. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 10 this morning. Chapter 10. It's always fun to examine the 12 apostles' mistakes. <laughs> and that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Amazed, afraid, and annoying, all in one section of Scripture. To make us stronger. Uh, we're going to take verses 32 through 45, and if you have your Bibles open, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Even if you don't have your Bibles open, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Beginning at verse 32. Now, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes. and They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life ransom for many." Please be seated. Now, I mentioned that we're seeing the, the apostles goof up here, but the, the gentleness of Jesus with them is, is quite encouraging. Uh, the title, Amazed, Afraid, and Annoying, describes the apostles of Christ, as I mentioned in this section, and it also describes us from time to time. There's no way around it. If you're going to serve Christ, you are going to have those times when you are amazed at things, not necessarily in a positive way. And you will find fear also as a part of serving Christ. And you will be annoying to others from time to time, and they will be to you. This is life in this world. And when we get to heaven, all that goes away. But for now, it is business until he comes, and it's serious business at that. We look at verse 32 again. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem... And Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them 
the things that would happen to them. Well, as we're reading this here, we have to remember this really happened. This is not some, uh, you know, creative writer such as a William Shakespeare or something. Uh, this is uh, a fact. These things took place and all that surrounds them. And they're going up to Jerusalem. It's always referred to as up to Jerusalem. If you were to parachute into Jerusalem, you would be going up into Jerusalem. Because it's not about the elevation or the terrain. It is about what it means to God. Yes, there were valleys surrounding Jerusalem, but there were other elevations in Israel that were higher. God's chosen purpose was on Jerusalem. There the temple stood. And believers... Believers should be consciously and spiritually mindful of going on higher ground. This comes to us from the Psalms, one place at least. Psalm 48, verse 2. Beautiful in elevation. Again, the spiritual overruling the physical. The physical is there, but it is eclipsed by the spiritual. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. That's Jerusalem, the holy city. Where true holy men are killed by pretend holy men. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. Lamented the Lord over this city. You go to Jerusalem today, at least me, um, you're not impressed with what you see visually. In fact, I was depressed by what I saw visually. And yet, what I know spiritually, that's what counts. That's what matters. And Jesus was going before them. He knew full well where he was going. He knew what was in store for him in Jerusalem. He was going into the mouth of death. And he is pictured here, as we read it, as he's walking alone. And... uh, He steps ahead of them, steps apart from them. That's why Mark includes, and Mark is the only one that puts this down, that they were afraid and they were amazed. Uh, they, uh, They know how serious the authorities in Jerusalem are against Christ, how hostile they are, and that they want to silence him. And so as they're going to Jerusalem, there they are amazed. And we can hear the chatter, them questioning his logic. Why is he doing this? Why is he going to Jerusalem? They're going to kill him. So again, this is not the amazing that we were just singing about, amazing grace. This is like, what is he doing? This doesn't make any sense. Oswald Chambers, in his My Utmost for His Highest, and if you've not read that book, I I highly endorse it, especially as a new believer after you get your uh, scripture in, Oswald Chambers, about this verse, I think has the best comments that I know of. He says, at the beginning, we were sure we knew all about Jesus Christ. It was a delight to sell all and to fling ourselves out into the hardihood of love. But now we're not so sure. Jesus is on it in front And he looked strange. Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. Well, that's kind of what Paul was telling the Corinthians. He says, 
in 2 Corinthians 5, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. We saw him in the manger. We saw him as a carpenter. But now we see him as something much, much more. The relationship has evolved for the good. Chambers continues to write about this verse. He says, At first I was confident that I understood him, but now I'm not so sure. I begin to realize there is a distance between Jesus Christ and me. I can no longer be familiar with him. He is ahead of me, and he never turns around. I have no idea where he is going, and the goal has become strangely far off. If you serve Christ long enough, you're going to come to these places where you don't know what Christ is doing. Beware of being too familiar with Christ. I mean, if, if the Lord had an office, who would go into his office and prop their feet up on his desk in a casual kind of way as though they were, you were equal with him? I hope none of us. Uh, this Christ we serve, as much as he loves us, as friendly as he is towards us, he is still God the Son Almighty. And every bit of the glory of God the Father is on him also because he is equal with God. He continues here, and as they followed, they were afraid. So they're amazed that he's going to Jerusalem, and they're fearful. And again, only Mark mentions these things. John, he comments about the same time about what Thomas said concerning Christ going to Jerusalem. There in John 11, then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So they had these flashes where they understood, but then they had these rollbacks where they completely were lost as to what was going on. My point for reading Thomas' quote is that Thomas was brave, ready to die for the Lord. They knew hostilities awaited him in Jerusalem. And then five minutes later, they forgot that they believed this. They were unstable in their theology at this time. We all go through this at some point where we're a little confused, a little clouded. Charles Spurgeon, the preacher, warned his students. He said, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. If you're a little confused about what you're saying, they're going to be really confused about what you're saying. It is a big deal. I believe that there was something more to their fear than just him going to Jerusalem. I believe it was how the Lord was now carrying himself. Something in his eyes, something in his tone and his manners now were different than they were before in Capernaum and up in Caesarea Philippi and all the other places they had gone. Something else had changed about him. There was now an intensity about him that unsettled them. Looking back on this moment, Mark again, Peter probably dictating to him the events, records it very clearly for us. Luke adds this, Now it came to pass... When the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. It was a little bit earlier than this moment here. But it was when they first found out he's going to Jerusalem and nothing can stop him. He steadfastly set his face to go there. There was nothing that was going to stop this. Maybe when you first read the Gospels and you got to the death of Jesus Christ, you said to yourself, why? This was so avoidable. God says, no, it's not. See, that was what Peter was saying. It's not so, Lord. 
you should not be crucified. Of course, he has to be crucified to redeem us. If we look at it with the eyes of a human, on a human level, yes, it doesn't make any sense that he should be crucified for sinners. But if we look at it spiritually, we know full well this is exactly, precisely what must happen. And nothing was going to stop him. Then he took the twelve aside again. So now he separates the twelve apostles from the other disciples that were with him also. In many of the places that he went, there were these other believers that accompanied him. These twelve were critical to the survival of Christianity. And Christ, of course, knew it full well. In fact, for us, sometimes on an individual level, our presence is critical for the survival of another person that does not yet know the Christ or maybe is thinking about becoming an apostate because Christianity has proven to not be what they hoped it to be. That's what makes an apostate many times. They have these great expectations of coming to Christ and when they do not happen the way they expected them, they begin to resent. They begin begin to doubt and they look somewhere else and in so doing, they become Those who fall away from the faith, in a single word, an apostate. These twelve would be the first overcomers in Christ. The first in a long line. We are supposed to be overcomers. And they overcame him by the word of the Lamb. The blood blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. Because they did not love their lives to the death. That is said of the tribulation saints and it should be said of us too. I don't feel like an overcomer many times. But when the smoke clears and the dust settles and my life is over, I'll be in heaven an overcomer, and so will all of you who believe. And Satan can do nothing about it. And he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. He's trying to prepare these men. And they're listening to him in moments. They believe what he's saying. But then again, I have to remind us over and over again, they never saw him fail. How could he die? This is one that raised people from the dead, stopped storms, walked on water, cleansed lepers, killed trees in an instant without a saw. An amazing relationship between Christ and creation. Verse 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. This is the fourth recorded mention of this death of his coming. Now, some your Bible trans uh, study Bibles may say three mentions, and that's because I'm counting one that they they missed. <laughs> uh, something it depends on how you count them is what it comes down to. They're they're not wrong, and and neither am I. Uh, he mentioned this, of uh, course, to Peter at the Great Confession in Mark chapter eight at Caesarea Philippi, where he has to rebuke, you know, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. He spoke of it as they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And then long after he had been down in the valley and heading towards uh, making his trek towards Jerusalem, he mentions it again. And then he mentions it again here. He will actually do it one more time when we get to the last verse of our morning consideration, verse 45, when he says that he's come to give his life ransom. And so if you count it that way, it's five times. But this 
critical to what he is doing. And it was not a truth that the disciples cared to really dig into. And that is also why there was this confusion. Of course, it is all prophetic. It's God's plan. We believers know that. The unbelievers do not know that. The unbelievers know so little about Jesus Christ. And that's where we come in. That's why they're prone toward idolatry. Idolatry is thriving. Anytime a human being makes up something about God, they have just committed idolatry. That's why we go by revelation, not speculation. But the world loves speculation because there's no accountability that belongs to it outside of one's own permission. Isaiah 53, verse 12, He poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That Isaiah wrote this down should have, should have taken away all of their surprise. But... They were not as familiar with Isaiah as we are at the time that these things were happening, it, it appears. Prior predictions of his coming death. Uh, these, uh, again, uh, was something they could not endure. And so now he's going to, for the first time, lay out the gruesome outline for them. And like the rhythmic beat of a drum telling troops how to march together. He's going to lay it out. You know, when troops march, big, you know, say you got a thousand troops out there marching, how do they all keep marching with the same foot, hitting the same, at the same ground? Everybody's left, right, left, right. They can't hear the voice commands. It's the sound of that bass drum. Every time that bass hits, the left foot hits the ground. And that's how you keep them in order. Well, here, there's a cadence that the Lord is marching to. Nine times do we hear him say, and, and, and. That's the beat. We look at it again, verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the son of, and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. You see the cage? Boom, boom. He's marching towards Jerusalem. He's staring down death. He is going to beat the snot out of death. He's the only one that can do it. They don't see this. We see it. Betrayed, backstabbed condemned, judged by evil men. Any of you want to be judged? See me after service. You know, can you imagine? I'm going to be judged. I'll be back at five. I mean, this is a mean and vicious judgment of people. Criticisms. They're criticizing him according to the law. They're twisted versions. Delivered to the Gentiles, no less. That's what he says to them. Mocked, publicly laughed at. Ridicule is a hard thing to endure scourged, physically whipped, skin peeled from his body, spat upon, the shame of it, not to mention that it's a biohazard, killed. That's what he gets out of this. From those whom he loved and came to die for, they murdered him. But then he rises as the victor. Each item and individual suffering is marked out. Which one stands out to you? Have you ever been backstabbed? Have you ever been laughed at publicly? 
beaten physically, spat upon. He lines them up for them. They still don't get it. As sure as he would suffer, he would rise again. That's what he's saying. Listen, they're going to do these things to me, but I'm getting up. Just as sure as you see them beat me, understand you will see me get up. That's the message they missed. We're supposed to get. Never again would he go through this for our sins. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. You cannot make it any more clear than that. How many times is one? The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Hebrews, 8, 9, uh, Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. He predicted his suffering. It was voluntary. It was in the place of others, vicarious, and it was, of course, victorious. Uh, three V's there. Luke adds this. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were spoken. It is perplexing. If you look at it from afar. But maybe if you again insert yourself into this number. And understand having seen him do so much. How could you expect little. In the face of death. How difficult it can be to get our heads around something. That's contrary to what we want to believe. Unable to rid their minds, the delusion just continued in their head. And they expected him to march into Jerusalem. They were afraid. They knew hostilities were there. But they still somehow expected him to get on that throne. And that's what's going to come out in the next section. Uh, This teaching of perpetual suffering of Christ, the Bible disagrees with it if you come across it. You come across anyone that is saying somehow he is still suffering for our sins. You can say, well, the Bible certainly disagrees with that based on the verses I just read. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. This is ridiculous. Uh, They're serious. And then it's an ill-timed, selfish request. He's talking about death. Okay, that's good. Now, can you do whatever I want you to do? (laughs) It is, you know, why didn't he bust out laughing in their face? Because he's not that kind of guy. Verse 36. And he said to them, (laughs) he's humoring them, is he not? What do you want me to do for you? I mean, you know he's not going to do it. He knows he's not going to do it. But he wants to hear them go ahead and continue to shove their feet in their mouths. Verse 37, they said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Matthew says it in your kingdom. (laughs) What we don't have here captured for us are the looks on the faces of all those involved. Maybe we can kind of just think about this a little bit so we do not become annoying as they were (laughs) in this section, is the face of Jesus. It is absent of any sign of disappointment. Since he is so patient with them, we know this to be the case. Since he kind of says, well, what do you want? And he just pulls them aside and he explains things. He's so gentle with them. 
I have been chasing this all my life in Christ. To be this gentle all the time. Sometimes I can do it. Other times I can't find it. As a pastor, usually I think I, have, I can get it. As a father, oh man. Anyway, you, you didn't come here to hear that. Oh yeah, we did. Tell us more how messed up you are as a dad. <laughs> well, there's the face of Salome. Who is she? She's the mother of James and John. This was her brainstorm. She's the one that came up with this. How do we know that? Because Matthew, is make, he makes sure we find out that she's behind this request. She's filled with the mother's foolishness. Our little babies, they're grown men. Well, I mean, we see this with moms, you know, to a fault. My little baby can never be wrong. The other kid's fault, not mine. And it's crazy. Kids are kids, all of them. Uh, they're going to be wrong many times. Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. Yeah, whatever, you, whatever I asked, that's what they were asking. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Now, here's where Jesus should have just asked. Are you delirious? James and John echo her request. Instead of objecting with that well-known mom, they ne it never comes. Because they like it. Yeah, we beat Peter, and we beat Peter to it. We're going to be on the right and left, and Peter and Thomas will not. I don't think that they were thinking that far ahead, but it's funny to make fun of them. I think I'm enjoying it. Sometimes it's just the parents that make everything difficult, not the child. It's the parents many times. Sometimes it is the child. But John, in his memories of Jesus, his biography of the Christ, he leaves this out. <laughs> How convenient. Well, you know, the other guys covered it. I don't need to go there. Yeah, that's funny. But you didn't mind saying Peter got to the tomb after you outran him. Little things like that. I don't know that they're... I think there's some humor in those. those they're in there intentional. Hey, Peter, did you read my gospel? Oh, well, Peter was dead by that time. But when he gets to heaven, did you read my gospel? You, no, just the part about you not beating me to the tomb. Peter would have counted, yeah, but I went in. <laughs> Chicken. The faces of James and John. Seriously expecting the Lord to say, Sure. I mean, you can just see their faces. There's Salome. Grant my sons, my beloved boys. Look at how beautiful they are. And then the, the boys up there nodding. And there's the faces of the ten disciples, shocked with indignation. First, why didn't I get there first? <laughs> that might have been one of the thoughts. Then there are the faces of all who read this passage of Scripture. What do you think when you come across this? You've got to be saying to yourself, this ain't right. He's talking about his death and they're looking for a seat on the throne. This kind of inappropriate ambition should be called out. If we have any chance of checking wrong behavior, of keeping it somewhat under control, we've got to call these things out, which is one reason why a lot of people don't want to go to a church where the Bible is preached or even read, because it will call us out. 
So in spite of his repeated mention of the cross, they still expected his kingdom. In spite of the fact that they were afraid to go to Jerusalem, amazed at the whole thing, they still somehow expected to come out on top because he never failed. Verse 38, But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And he is gently telling them no. Uh, I think it is a part of ministry to not delight in shutting people down when you have to shut them down. Just know, like, whoo-hoo, man, did you see the look on their face when I stopped that? That would be wrong. Well, it would be bad because then the Lord's going to pull you aside and deal with you. That's the bad part. One reason why I try to obey Christ is fear. It's just some afraid he's going to get me. (laughs) I don't always think that way, but there are some things, no way. Well... Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Without the fear of the Lord, what knowledge could you have? He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? This is a challenge to James and John and their ambition. You don't know what you're talking about. He's exposing this. By the time he gets to this cup in in Mark 14, we read, and he said, Abba, Father. Now, that Abba is put there as an emotional outburst of the Lord. His heart is deep into this. This is very personal between he and the Father, and yet he shares it. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now again, anyone who says there are other ways to heaven outside of Christ, I'll add to that, apart from Christ, is accusing God of being a savage. Because you would have to be a savage to send your son to a vicious cross if there was another way to do it. There is no other way. And that's why Jesus says, all things are possible for you. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Yeah, God could have stopped this whole thing. Christ could have called legions of angels down. But it was not possible to save souls any other way. The cup refers to the inward sufferings, and the baptism refers, the baptism that he is talking about, to the outward persecutions. He's going to be immersed in the persecution. We get one part of it visually on the cross. We do not get the other part of his Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Again, immersed into this death deeper and darker than the immersion into the Jordan by John just a few years back. To be baptized with suffering means to be overwhelmed. The immersion, when 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 we baptize someone, we get them all the way under. They are overwhelmed in the moment. Soaked in the suffering he would be only for us. That's, he gets us in return. We get glory in heaven so much more. Verse 39, then he's, then, uh, pardon me, verse 39, they said to him, we are able, so Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup and that I drink and be with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. This uh, reply of theirs, we are able, it is uh, ignorant, of course. It's well intended, but that's not good enough. It's still wrong. Uh, theirs was the answer of gross ignorance. Uh, yo, sure, we could do it. 
not knowing, like a child almost, you know, when a child tells you they can do something that you know it's impossible for them to do, and yet they're insistent, and this is not going well, the child is being bullheaded, and they will drink some of this cup, not the dregs. Uh, Of course, James will be the first of the twelve to die, which had to be a great wake-up call to the remaining ten, then to be eleven, that if James was expendable, so were they. If God would let James be martyred, then God would let them be martyred. At least the potential for that now was, was great. And that would shake up ministry quite, quite a bit. And so Christ is facing death and sorrow, and all they can think about is the higher place of honor. And he says, look, guys, you can't handle this. And they, don't, they still don't get it. They don't walk away satisfied. I don't believe that they do. They hear his answer, but I, I think they still don't get it. These men, I looked... I looked for a word better than the two words that I'm going to use, and I can't find one. This is the word. These men were messed up. That's the word. But this doesn't stop there, because God spoke to me when I was considering this. Just think about that next time Satan tells you you're unfit to serve me. You see these men? You see how messed up they were? And yet I loved them and I used them. I used them so much, you depend on what they say about me. And I do this over and over again. All my servants are messed up. And I use them and I love them. John's Gospel, chapter 13, at the time now, once he gets to Jerusalem, this is what John is writing about, he writes this. This is right before the foot washing. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. These messed up characters. These men that were defective. He not only loved them, he put them to work over and over again. And they will make other mistakes and he will still use them. Any of you serving in Christ? and you, so devil, The devil loves to come. You can't serve in the church. You're just too messed up. He's lying to you. You are messed up. That part I can testify to. But not to the point where you you can't be used. Now, there are some, if you're impenitent, if there's something that's been brought to the surface and it's got to be dealt with, that, of course, demands attention. But overall, none of us are fit for ministry. And yet, he has no one else. He is determined not to use the angels to do what we are called to do. I mean, I wouldn't mind if he had angels as ushers. I mean, you could get, you know, they could do some amazing things. (laughs) But we don't have that option. We have to depend on each other. And that can be amazing. It can be fearful. It can be annoying. It can be glorious. In the end, only thing that's going to be left is what's for Christ. And it will be amazing. Verse 40. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for those for whom it is prepared. Okay, so God the Father decides the privilege and honor of this thing. He's so gentle with them. Again, he does not say to them, that is a stupid question. It is a fool. You know, he doesn't do anything like that. He just, he could have said, you're, you're promoting yourselves and it's shameful because I've dealt with this earlier. And now we're back to this. He doesn't do any of that. doesn't bring it up. Matthew 23. Jesus had warned 
They loved the best places at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Jesus was telling his apostles, pastors are not supposed to be celebrities. You're not supposed to be, you know, a sighting of the pastor. Well, get his autograph. You were one of the sheep that he has entrusted you with. It's even, he goes into detail in what we call Luke 14. In verse 8, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him, come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lower place. He continues to develop it. and says, so humble yourself. And here they're complete opposite. They're looking for the best seat. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now, they're annoyed, aren't they? <laughs> they're so, I can't believe it. That's Thomas. Uh, <laughs> the trio, Salome, James, and John, of course, they made a blunder. But this wasn't all who they were. They weren't oh, despicable people for this. There's more to them, and Christ centered on that. Yeah, I see they goofed. This was, you know, bad on multiple levels, but there's more to them. There's more. I can use these people. And uh, again, I get very encouraged by that. Uh, what it does mean is that they did miss important points that Jesus taught. Well, that's never happened to us, so we have a hard time being patient with that. How much, how, how much, I, how much, you know, time spent recording what we learn because we know it's going to evaporate in time. Um, it's just a struggle, but it's worth it. Verse 42, Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Again, this tender patience, repeating the lesson. Proverbs seventeen fourteen. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. So the other disciples have become indignant at their request. Christ diffuses this. He says, guys, let me teach you something about this whole thing. See, the beginning of strife is like a dam about to burst. First, the water starts coming out a little bit, but it's going to start picking up speed if it's not dealt with. Therefore, stop contention before the quarrel starts. As we speak, there's a little boy dressed in blue with his thumb in the hole on the dam. I guess artwork's not something you're familiar with at all. But let's come back to reality here. Verse 43. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great, among you shall be your servant. Uh, this is a commandment. It shall not be so among you. That's a commandment. I, I don't have to follow this because I'm special. But you all do. I don't like some of the commandments of Christ. Oh, my spirit loves them all. Because he knows, it knows it's right. But my flesh protests too much. Like all the time. My flesh disagrees with everything Christ says, and when it does agree, it only agrees, pardon me, agrees to the degree that it can have satisfaction. Verse 44, 
And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. So we are, are we afraid of that word slave? It shows up in the epistles often, but it's, it's sort of toned down a little bit. Servant, but it is slave. In the New Testament, we are slaves of Christ, willful slaves. We're not enslaved against our will. And that makes us bondservants. A big difference. Paul uses that interpretive word to describe the servant of Christ. This, uh, verse 44, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. He's against striving in the flesh. It's a variation of verse 31 in Mark 10, where we ended last week, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Well, this is a variation of it, and he is warning them about this self-promotion. Keeping your eyes on Jesus helps keep this in check. It doesn't stop it, but it does help. And that's what largely the Christian life becomes. A life arresting evil, not stopping it entirely, but keeping it in check, keeping it from getting out of control. Much of that takes place, and we're glad for it, because if it weren't there, then we would, uh, as the saying goes, hell would break loose. Verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the kingpin verse of Mark's gospel. It is the gospel, condensed into one verse. Um, you know, there I know people that have this as their either login name or probably password, Mark 10, 25, you know. And so I go in and I find all this stuff. Uh, <laughs> it divides the, mos- the gospel of Mark into two sections. In the first ten chapters of Mark, largely Jesus is giving in, uh, giving himself in service. But at now, when we get to chapter 11, he's going to give himself in sacrifice. It's all about the cross now. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He did not come to be served. What, what could we serve him with? What could we give to Christ? It's like a two-year-old getting a father's, you know, a, a birthday present. What does a two-year-old have to give? Well, Love. That's what the child has to give. But he really doesn't have, doesn't have a credit card, a checking account. He doesn't have anything to bother with. It's just love. We have nothing. Uh, what's in it for Christ? Love. God is love. He does not need us, but he sure wants us. And which has got to be heartbreaking to find so many sinners that could care less about him. Hebrews 7.26 Speaking of Christ, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. That can be said about nobody else in the Bible but Jesus Christ. No human being, no one created can have that said about them. Not with a straight face. He is God the servant of God the Father who serves man. We're supposed to do the same thing, but man gets in the way. And we've got to battle that. And we depend on the Lord to do it. Um, I want to close with this verse from John's Gospel again, where he washed the disciples' feet. Because as he's been serving men with his life, his miracles and his teachings, 
his example. Now he's going to use his blood. John 13, For I have given you an example, and you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Pursuing the standards of Christ is worth it. Let's pray. Our Father, it's all about getting to heaven for us. But until then, it's all about serving on earth and preaching the truth and pursuing it with our lives. If you've been listening or watching online or here in the church and you've never opened your heart to Christ, then you have to feel as though you are an outsider to his blessings because you are. If you've never invited him to be your Lord, he cannot be your Savior. You have to open your heart. You have to ask Jesus to forgive you for your sins, which are against him, which are against his Father and the Holy Spirit. If you would like to belong to Christ, to be a beneficiary of salvation that he has achieved for us, then you have to make this confession in earnest. It has to be deliberate. It has to be sincere. It has to be according to the truth of his word. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, and I ask you to forgive me. I want to turn from my sin, and I want to give my life to you. And I ask that you would receive me as your own from this day forward. That you would be the one who saves my soul from a coming judgment. And the one who lords over my life right now. And I give it to you. There's no one else to go for. Go to. There's no one else worthy. I turn to you and I ask to belong to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer in earnest... May they not hesitate to make it known. May they not be ashamed of it. But may they be eager to share their confession. We commit these things to your hands. In Jesus' name.